Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I hold no degrees in the topics I cover on the show. Question everything I say and let me know when I get it wrong. I also feel I should warn you that I swear. Avoiding it would make me sound fake and I'm just too lazy to bleep or edit it out. So listener discretion is advised. situation here in Hawaii earlier this evening the uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas Welcome, folks. Present and future to episode 38 of Living Through Extinction, a podcast that explores ways we can do better for the sake of future generations. The main segment goes over a different area under that umbrella each episode. It's preceded by a skepticism segment, which tends to be the angry, ranty part, as well as stories relating to the environment and wild and plant life, where my favorites are about weird animals you maybe never heard of before. I end each episode with a brief segment about something positive or a little something about me. I'm going to have the first of my own stories in this episode, actually, so stay tuned to the end for stories of my run-ins with bears. For context, I should mention I grew up in bear country. And to fellow TCO fans, I should also say, bear's gonna bear, right? Everyone in my household will have had their first dose of COVID vaccine as of June 5th. A few quick points about vaccines. A slight immune response is expected. It does not mean you caught anything. It is still possible to catch the disease you were inoculated against for up to two weeks after receiving the vaccine. If you catch something just before receiving a vaccine for it, the vaccine doesn't stop it. It will likely have to run its course. Nobody has ever gotten the flu from a flu vaccine. Those who have had the flu immediately after caught it before the shot, just after the shot, or it is a variant which was not covered by the shot. The flu cannot be acquired from the flu vaccine. Just so y'all know, I am super proud to be part of a workplace that is not putting up with any ignorance when it comes to spreading COVID bullshit. Someone made a claim that they caught a light case of COVID from their inoculation and the rumor spread through the plant. Our manager is amazing and nipped it in the bud. They sent out a notice to everyone explaining that this was not only untrue, but impossible and why they provided a link with more information and made the following comment there is no place here for conspiracy theories gossiping about other associates or spreading misinformation it was so well put and i was so happy to see it my workplace is also letting people know that if they want to take the first available vaccine appointments they can and if it turns out to be during work hours they will not be docked any pay for it And it gives me joy to be in a workplace that creates its policies based on science and skepticism. More companies need to be skeptical, damn it. Way back in the first few months of 2020, Jason and I talked about topsoil erosion for our seventh episode. The latest updates relating to this issue were published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and it continues to look rather bleak. The study was led by the University of Massachusetts Amherst. The main blame goes to repeated plowing of fields, which loosens the soil and causes it to slide away, especially from hilltops and ridgelines. Their published results show that one 
third of farmland in the U.S. Corn Belt has completely lost its carbon-rich topsoil. This has a lot of consequences. Nearly 100 million acres of land can no longer produce the high yields of crops as it once did. The loss to farmers as a whole is nearly $3 billion per year. Topsoil absorbs moisture and nutrients. When it's not there, one of the results is an increase in a runoff of sediments and nutrients. This runoff ultimately ends up in waterways. And what's good for the plants is not good for us. That runoff is very bad for the water quality of rivers and streams, sometimes for thousands of miles. Are there solutions? Prior research has shown that no-till practices can significantly reduce soil erosion by more than 70%, keeping a nice, thick, carbon-rich topsoil where it's needed. The result is a reduction of nutrient sediment runoff, and the result of that is cleaner water and more of the nutrients and sediment staying where it's needed to continue to grow the food that feeds us all. Unfortunately, no-till farming is only practiced in a small percentage of farms in the U.S. The thing is, even switching to partial no-till practices could make a huge difference. There is interesting research that has shown if the focus is on the most vulnerable areas, only a 40% no-till practice shows almost the same amount of positive results as 100% no-till practices. So change doesn't even need to go all the way. If more farmers made just a partial switch over in their tilling, the benefits could help to keep all of our bellies full for generations to come. It's cute animal time! I learned about pumpkin toadlets, and they are the most adorable little critters on the planet. There are at least 36 known types of pumpkin toadlets living in Brazil's Atlantic Forest. Of course, I spent like 30 minutes looking up pictures of as many as I could find, and they're all the cutest things ever. Their bright color is a warning to predators to stay the fuck away. A deadly toxin is in their skin, so eating them will be detrimental to just about any animal. Having spent my life in North America, to me frogs and toads are a range of brown to green, so when I get to see a fluorescent bright orange toadlet, well for me that was super cool. The reason I learned about this sweet though deadly animal family is because of articles announcing a new glowing pumpkin toadlet that was recently discovered. I'm going to try the name. It has been named Brachycephalus rottenbergae and is described in the journal Plus One. If you can, please Google this little thing. It's so orange and so tiny and so cute. The eyes look extra black against the bright orange, as do the few tiny black spots. I didn't realize it until I saw one next to a hand, but they are the size of a thumbnail, slightly smaller than the other toadlets. Also, it has a different, I think cuter, snout. Also Google pumpkin toadlet under black light. It's worth it. They look so cool. It was discovered during research efforts that were actually focused on finding new pumpkin toadlets across Brazil. 76 field surveys were conducted between 2018 and 2019. Their reasons for looking for new toadlets? Identifying them is crucial to learning about and maybe even protecting Brazil's biodiversity. Of particular interest is the species-rich Atlantic forest. It has lost 93% of its original cover due to deforestation and agriculture, drastically changing the habitats. While deforestation rates in Brazil have been dropping, there were still over 28,000 acres cleared in 2018 alone.
continuing on my three-part household series before I take my uh, two-week period break. Last week, I talked about household paper products. Today, I'm going to talk about household appliances and whether one should consider going gas or electric for those with the option, such as the dryer, fireplace, stove, and barbecue. Beginning with dryers, the gas ones are more expensive to buy. They are highly efficient, however, both drying clothes faster and using less energy. The savings from a gas dryer when compared to an electric one are substantial. They do use some electricity, but it's supposedly minimal, and they are still much cheaper to operate. One drawback for some is that a gas dryer requires a vent to the outside. If your home is not set up for that, then gas may be out of the running for you completely. Electric dryers can also have some vents to the outside, but there are some versions which do not require it. Again, your home may force you to buy a ventless dryer, in which case you must go electric. For a fireplace, if you don't use old-fashioned logs, there are different things to keep in mind when deciding between gas and electric. A gas fireplace has fake logs, uses less trees, but a real flame to provide the fireplace atmosphere you may be shooting for. This is the one area, though, where gas is not the cheaper option. It takes more gas than it does electricity to make the same level of heat. Your bill will definitely be higher with a gas fireplace. While the electric fireplaces have a nice heat to them, they do not offer the same effect of a nice flame. Ambient heat is radiated from warmed coils. In my opinion, it's a glorified space heater. Give me logs and a unique fire every time. Electric fireplaces are more efficient than gas, though, and will keep your bills down. They are also known to be safer, as their bodies stay cool to the touch, and there's no flame, which automatically makes it safer. I don't think I care, to be honest. I want a real fire. Not that I even have a fireplace, but I would want a fire with logs. When it comes to your stove, again, a gas one will cost more, but last much longer. It's made up of fewer parts, making it easier to maintain. They do use some electricity, but again, it's supposedly minimal. The main drawback of a gas stovetop is the scrubbing of the grates and drip pans. Electric ovens are known to heat more evenly, so actually preferred by bakers. New cooks will also tend to prefer an electric oven and cooktop. They are simply easier to use, and the cleanup on newer model stovetops is a breeze. Another way to cook for many people is with an outdoor gas or electric grill. A gas grill can be stationary with a line fed right into it, or it can be portable with a propane tank. The benefit is the real flame, which provides more flavor. There are certain restrictions on gas grills in some places, though, so always check on those before spending your money. Electric grills tend to be more compact and can be operated anywhere they can be plugged in. They're much easier to maintain a specific even temperature on, which is a plus for cooking. No outdoor style flavor, though, if that's what you're looking for. In my opinion, we should go back to old-fashioned charcoal and mesquite. Not only do they infuse food with more flavor, but they can be taken literally anywhere, especially the small ones. There are no required connections, just required supplies. And apparently they are usually cheaper to run as well. I'm on Team Charcoal Mesquite on this one. That's about all for those appliances with gas options. Furnaces will have their own episode someday. That's a whole different animal. Now, when it comes to switching out from electric to gas, one should consider how long they plan to be in that home. The cost to make the switch is huge. Gas lines have to be rerouted and gas appliances can't just be plugged in. They require professional installation. 
The items themselves are also more expensive than electric ones, so this is an investment that needs time in order to pay off. There is a chance of energy rebates from your local municipality, so check on that and include it in your calculations. Over time, in the long run, if you are staying in that house, it will save you money. But you have to put out a whole lot up front, and that investment will take some time to pay off. Of course, it's just as pricey to go the other way around, from gas to electric, but who would do that? You have to have the gas professionally capped, electric has to be installed for each device, and your bills would go up, <laughs> so no benefits there. If safety is more of a concern than price, then keep in mind that a home with gas appliances must have proper ventilation and must have a carbon monoxide alarm, which is tested regularly. With electric, the risks are low, but there are slight chances of shock and or electric fire. I can attest to that. Oh God, I think I have two attests to that. I was baking a cake once, so very, very long ago, and hubby was off at a jam, as usual, and there were no kids yet. I had a cake batter just about finished, when a psh, poof sound came from the oven, which had been preheating. I turned and saw a little puff of smoke come out of the back of the top area, and yes, it was dead. Thank goodness for my collection of cute small pans and a toaster oven. I had a lot of cake batter to get baked. I was also once electrocuted by a small electric helmet on which the ground had fallen. That was a crazy experience. I grabbed the all-metal ladle, which was in a tall all-metal container, to stir the gravy we had cooking at A&W where I worked at the time. I felt the vibration immediately, but I couldn't open my hand. It was my right hand. I couldn't open my right hand to let go. It was just clamped around this fucking ladle. It was doing its own thing and just wanted to hold on. So I pulled up and out and made a huge mess, but got control of my hand again and let go of the fucking ladle. <laughs> that was one of those fucked up experiences that a person never forgets. Like, wow, what if I hadn't been able to raise my arm like I wasn't able to open my hand? Would I have just been stuck there vibrating until I died of electrocution? Would someone have come in and in trying to help me also got hurt? But I was able to lift my arm and that stopped the current, so I will never know what would have happened if I hadn't been able to. Moving on from that huge sidetrack, there are also appliances where electric will be your only option. Washing machines used to give you a choice, but today gas models are no longer made. High efficiency electric ones took their place. The trade-off is how little water newer models use as compared to older gas and electric. When it comes to dishwashers, one thing to keep in mind is that as long as you only run it when it's full, then yes, less water use is involved than with hand washing. So the only real issues are with parts and production, which I'll talk about as a whole for all of these items in a minute. I think that the most harm to the environment from appliances must come from fridges and freezers. They contain coolants, which are very potent greenhouse gases. Proper disposal of these items is very important, but not always practiced. The cooling industry as a whole is a huge problem I plan to discuss in the future, as it's responsible for three times the CO2 emissions of aviation and shipping combined. That's huge and deserves its own episode. Air conditioners will also fall under this umbrella. I left the manufacturing issues for the end because there are similarities for all the appliances and I didn't want to be repeating myself. The factories which produce these items all use tons of oil, gas, or coal and all put out greenhouse gas emissions. One of their biggest issues is that all also use incredible amounts of water. On top of the water use, the water that comes out, the water waste, is polluted to the point of toxicity at times. 
Industrial and manufacturing wastes overall are the biggest contributors to water pollution. The bodies and parts of our appliances are made from steel, aluminum, and plastics, each of which have their own issues. There is even more of an environmental impact due to the digital parts on appliances sold today. These extras we all love use rare earth metals such as gold and cobalt. There are both mining and machinery impacts as a result. It's all accumulative. So appliances have a high impact on the environment even before you use them for the first time. But we're not going to stop buying appliances. So what we should do is at least try to get those with high energy ratings if we can. And when getting rid of an old appliance, we should contact our local municipalities about what options are available. If you have the opportunity to buy refurbished, to me, I think that's a fantastic option. The other thing to keep in mind is to operate all of these items at as full capacity as much as possible. When it comes to those appliances where gas is a choice, it looks like gas is almost always cheaper than electric. Apparently, an all-gas appliance household can save up to 30%. Your decision will have other factors to keep in mind, however. How your home is set up, how long you plan to be there, whether you're starting with something or switching out from something, your needs, your skills, your finances, safety. There's not one right product for everyone. Each person has to weigh all these factors and make the best choices for them and their family in their home that they can. Today I'm going to share a little something about myself. Having grown up in bear country, I decided to share of my life with bears stories. There were many years where bears were regularly coming into town, and then of course we were always trudging through the bush at night and stuff. We were dumb. One of my earliest bear memories didn't even happen to me. I think I was in the second grade, and one of my classmates lived on the road across the street from the bush on the edge of town. One of the edges of town. I'd heard the adults talking about what a bad bear year it was, and then my mom got news about my friend's mom and got super freaked out. So my friend's mom was walking home and had passed the arena, so had the bush to her right and a row of houses to her left. When she got home, her phone was ringing. Her friend from down the street was on the other end and just losing her mind all, oh my god, thank god you're okay. Did you close the doors behind you? I just saw a bear following you home. <laughs> Can you imagine getting that phone call? Her friend down the street had seen her walking and saw the bear about 20 feet away walking behind her in the same direction and was too afraid to go outside, so watched until her friend got just out of sight, but she could still see the bear and started calling. That's my understanding, anyway. After all, I was just a child hearing it from my mom, who heard it from the person it happened to. I clearly remember the bear traps in the village green. Our first house in Pine Falls was across the street from the village green, which had a small tennis court on one edge and two small round monkey bars and a few swings in the middle of a big field of random trees. The swings and monkey bars were shit, but I used to love climbing the trees. You know those giant bear traps? Huge cylinder containers? I believe bait was put in the back and when they went in for it, the metal doors came down and the bear was trapped until it could be taken away. Yeah, us kids totally crawled in and out of those things all the time. We'd dare each other to go in. Nobody I knew ever got trapped, but we were just lucky. We were so dumb. But also, you're probably asking yourself, what is a giant metal contraption of a bear trap doing in the town playground? The bears liked to go there. They would come out over by the hospital, and they would come into the village green, and it was just like the woods, but much more sparse. And they would just kind of settle in there, or climb a tree or whatever. We saw bears in there dozens of times over the years, and that's just the ones we saw. They normally came out at night. I used to cut through the village green on the way to school every day. One day I was walking through, and there was a group of men and a couple of trucks on the road to the right of the park. 
I didn't pay further attention, kept walking. Then I realized they were yelling, so I looked back at them. They were waving their hands and yelling at me. I finally figured out that they were pointing up at the tree I had just passed under. Oh, look at that. There's a big old bear up there. I'm going to continue on to school now. <laughs> kind of fucked, right? As I got older and started going to parties and then eventually bars, the quickest road home was always the bush road. Back then, this was not a drivable road. I knew so many who tried to avoid check stops by going that way and got completely stuck. On foot, though, it was a regular route to get from Powerview to Pine Falls nice and quickly. Quicker than walking down the highway, anyway. This was another one of those dumb things we all did. I did it alone quite often, too, because I was always sneaking out of shit early. So, one in the morning, miniskirt blouse, dress shoes, hammered, stumbling down a muddy, lumpy road with trees on either side. Then I hear a loud and very clear snap of a branch, and I know damn well there's a bear in the trees between me and the town. I would have felt a lot better if it had come from my left, which was just bush. But this was my right, and I eventually had to turn right to get to the hospital road and ultimately home. I was halfway through, so there was no point turning back. The only choice was to go forward, so I did so as loudly as I could. When I turned onto the hospital road, no bear came out to greet me, and everything was okay. Yes, I was an idiot. One more, I find this shorter story to be the funny one. I was out after dark, walking with a friend and her boyfriend. We weren't heavily dressed. It was probably fall time. I don't think it was super late. As a stubborn teen, I went through a phase of refusing to wear my glasses, and on this night, my glasses were hidden away in a pocket as usual. We were heading towards the edge of town where my friend's mum was followed by a bear. The other end of the street was just a block and a half ahead of us. I looked ahead and saw a garbage bag in the middle of the sidewalk. Outrage hits, and I start walking forward, a little angry, saying, Did someone leave a bag of garbage in the middle of the sidewalk? I'm thinking, who the fuck is the asshole that did this? Then I felt myself being pulled back. My friend had grabbed the back collar of my light jacket and pulled me back, saying, Ruby, put your fucking glasses on. That's a fucking bear. <laughs> Whoops. I was about to angrily storm up to a bear. We turned at the next street, rather than continue on that way. That's my sharing for today. A little peek into growing up in a town where running into bears was a pretty normal thing. Do you have something in your life that was normal to you but not to everyone else? Share it with me at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. But be sure to let me know if you do not want it shared on the show or if you prefer your name to be left out. So ends episode 38. Thank you for listening and may your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro-outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me in two weeks for episode 39 of Living Through Extinction. Here in Hawaii earlier this evening, the uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. The sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Apocalyptic scenes as twisters tear through the southern plains.